go. All right. Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say hi to everyone in Auditorium B this morning. Also want to say good morning to everyone watching, listening online, wherever you might be. We're so glad you're here. Uh, The passage I'm going to preach out of today, again, is in Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible, digitally or or physically, I'd love you to turn there. I preached out of this passage quite a few years ago, and I started with a story I'd like to retell this morning. I was, I think, around five years old, though uh, I was born in the Schwa, that's Oshawa for everyone online who doesn't understand. All right, represent. Okay, cool. Uh, I was born in Oshawa. I grew up in Ecuador, but uh, when I lived out that way and came back from Ecuador, uh, we used to live with my cousins. And this week on Facebook, one of my cousins posted a picture of the three of us when we were young. And it got me thinking about this story. I loved magnifying glasses as a young boy. It was one of my favorite things. And I, I liked looking at stamps. I liked looking at things. I liked burning ants. Yes, I was one of those boys. Uh, yeah. Um, and I also loved starting fires. Oh, what an amazing thing it was. And so as I was at my cousin's house one day, they lived on on this street, and across the street was a a wooded area. I'm sure in my mind it was a massive forest. It probably wasn't. But I went over, I believe it was in the fall time, and so I went over and I gathered some leaves, and, and I sat with my magnifying glass, very steadily waiting, hoping, hoping for the fire to come. Well, as I did, suddenly, whew, You know what I'm talking about? That little smoke came. I got very excited. I was like, yes. But I I kept doing it. And and then I actually started a fire. Now, I was very, very excited that I had had made fire, right? Like, okay. So I I kept doing it. The fire kept getting bigger. Now, I wanted to make fire, not just because I like fire, but because I wanted to be a fireman. So I wanted to put the fire out that I started. So I ran across the street. I was probably five. My cousin was three. Her name is Sandra. And I said, Sandra, you you can see what I've become. You come over here. We need to put out the fire. So my leadership gifts kicked in. My little three-year-old cousin's running around. We're getting buckets. Now I'm looking across the street and getting even more and more excited because there's more and more smoke and more and more flames, which means I get to battle the fire even more. So I'm like, Sandra, let's go. So we're running across the street with our little toy buckets full of water. And we're laughing as we're doing this. We run back and forth. And they're like, Sandra, get the chariot, which of course was our wagon. We, we fill more up. Now, now, we're doing this. The fire is getting bigger and bigger. And I'm like, yeah, this is so exciting. And we're running back and forth, back and forth. And suddenly a neighbor is watching these little children, wondering what is going on. And as she's watching, she does this and sees this significant fire as we are now throwing water against flames that are taller than us. She runs out and says, what are you doing? I'm like, I started the fire. It's so exciting, and I'm a fireman. She's like, oh my goodness, 911. Of course, she didn't have a cell phone. That didn't exist back then. You had to go get a, you remember a phone with a cord? Anyone under 30 doesn't understand. There are ancient times. (laughs) There are ancient times where these things did not exist. I just, I need to tell you, I'm the last generation of that. So she says, you must stop this. But I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. Suddenly my cousin's mother, she's screaming, we're laughing, and then it happened. The fire truck showed up. I was like, yes! Ah! 
oh my goodness, my heart is like, and then the talk came. <laughs> you want to be a fireman, you don't start fires. Those are called arsonists. We put you in jail. Oh, uh, what a picture of humanity where we start fires all the time and we say, it is good. And then when the fire gets bigger and bigger, we think that we have the ability to put it out. And we don't. We declare the fire is fun. We declare the fire is good. We declare that we have the ability to put out the fire when we don't have that ability. And then it takes someone else to come rescue us. That is the heartbeat of the Christian gospel And that is the heartbeat of what Jesus is going to address today in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is week three in our major sermon series for the year. And we're looking at Jesus' most famous teaching out of Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Jesus is teaching what the kingdom of God, the kingdom come, looks like in an ordinary life. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after you've accepted Jesus as King and Savior. Now, as I've been teaching you, if the spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom grow, and if spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation as we walk with the king of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom will look like in your everyday, ordinary life. The Sermon on the Mount is the ethics. It's the lifestyle of those who are already in the kingdom. You cannot obey the Sermon on the Mount morally or religiously. You must have relationship first. Now, if you've been with us over the last two weeks, today you should begin to notice an ever-growing presence of Jesus getting closer to you. Jesus, by his very vocabulary, starts focusing in We're saying in this church, oh God, oh God, oh God, nothing less than your kingdom come. Lord, you work out your kingdom in me, no matter the cost. You work out your kingdom in my family. We invite you into all of C4, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Bring it, Lord. We're saying, oh God, show up in Durham region in a way we have never, ever imagined or seen. Oh, that the reign and rule of God would be found, evidenced in this region. And Jesus says back to us, oh, no problem. I'd love to do that. Week one, Jesus started by saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. At the very end of those blessings, the Beatitudes, he moved and he said, blessed are you. Last week, he moved from sort of a general statement to a specific, he said, you. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. But now today, Jesus will use more authoritative language, very un-Canadian language. He will say the phrase, I tell you. He moves from general, blessed, to you, to I'm commanding in specific. Jesus is looking many of us in the eye this morning. You, my son, you, my daughter, this is what I'm calling all of you to. Jesus is about to speak and give members of any person who claims the kingdom of God six calls, six commands. Jesus is about to deal with murder, adultery, divorce, oaths. He's about to ask the question, can you sue someone? He's going to deal with issues of justice. He's going to deal with issues of revenge. He's about to show us as followers of him how we interact with the world, our family, our neighbors, the government. 
What does it look like for someone who's part of now the kingdom of God to interact with a world that they used to give allegiance to? The next six sermons in this church out of C4 find their starting point and grounding today. If you want to understand everything between now and basically Christmas, today matters. Here's what Jesus starts saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. No, no, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Many in the original audience would start thinking that maybe after Jesus' initial conversation, he was coming to set up a new law, or throw out the old one, or he was here to destroy the law, or throw out the whole Old Testament. And Jesus is coming and saying, no, no, no. I've come to fulfill. The word fulfill in Greek is to fill or to draw up and out. He says, I am coming to draw out my Father's never-changing word. I'm not here to repeal anything from the Old Testament. I'm here, everyone ready, to make sure you all know what it really means. Now, when you hear the word law, the law has three components, and it's very important we get this. Thinking caps on for a moment. When you hear Jesus use the term the law, there are three parts to the law. There's the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law that make up part of the Old Testament. The moral law stems from God's character. The moral law never changes. The moral law is based on the very DNA of God. The Ten Commandments is the summary of the moral law. So understand this. God didn't wake up one morning and go, "Mm, I don't like murder. No, he hates murder because he is a life-giving God. He hates adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. He hates coveting because he's a gift-giving God. See, when you break the moral law, you literally assault God himself. The moral law is the great reflection of him. Now, the people of God, the Israelite community, were also given ceremonial law and civil law. The civil law was how to run a country under God's direct ownership, and the ceremonial law was a bunch of external pictures to reflect holiness. So they talked about, you can't eat this food but that food, or you can't mix this form of clothing with that form of clothing. All boys had to be circumcised, and the list goes on and on. There's all these amazing, amazing festivals. But here's what we need to understand as I get preaching this morning. All the civil and ceremonial law no longer apply in the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus fulfills all of those things. Here's the hermeneutical rule we all need to get this morning. Here's how you interpret scripture right. If any specific law from the Old Testament is not continued in the New Testament, it does not apply. Why? Because it was bad? No, because those things are not transferred because Jesus, by his perfect birth, perfect life, perfect perfect death, perfect resurrection and ascension, has fulfilled all of them. Here's how I would put it. Jesus fulfills the patterns, the predictions, and the pictures of the whole Old Testament. Testament. So here's what really gets exciting. I love when another person said it this way. Jesus achieved the demands of the law. He kept it perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the intent of the law that he pleased his father with his obedience. Jesus completed the purpose of the law and that he fulfilled the requirements. Jesus executed the covenant of the law and that he claims the rewards of the obedience. Jesus perfected the requirements of the law and that he exceeded its expectations. And Jesus terminates the need for the law because he became the word of God to all of us. So let me say this again. Jesus isn't saying the Old Testament is garbage. Are you joking? It's his word. He says, I fulfill the patterns, predictions, and pictures of the Old Testament. 
It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great resistor of Nazi Germany, that great pastor who wrote these words. Jesus, he said, Jesus has in fact added nothing to the commandments of God except this. He keeps them. The author of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 write this. He said, the law was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who are drawing near to worship. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt the guilt of their sins. But those sacrifices were and are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So here's the question that we need to wrestle with because we are praying legitimately for that to happen. So how do we, people of the kingdom of God, how do we as Christians deal with the law if Jesus says he has fulfilled the law? Now, I want to just take a detour. I don't usually do this. Can everyone turn to Romans 3 really quick in their Bible? Just Romans chapter 3. Here's how Paul fleshes out what Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 3.20. Therefore, he says, no one... No one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, the law, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, Paul is writing and basically saying, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you possess the law or you obey the law. None of those things will save you. It was not about position, performance, or possession. Paul says you cannot be saved by having the law, knowing the law, or obeying the law. We are never saved by what we do. But the law does show us one thing. The law shows us the holiness of God, the, the, the beauty of God, the glory of God. And when we as human beings, beings face that through the law, our sin, our separation, our need for an external savior, our consciousness of sin becomes acute. We suddenly found out that starting the fire is wrong. Thank God for his law, church. Thank God for his relentless, loving confrontation of our problem and then giving us an answer. He's not some thug upstairs, a naysayer saying, well, you're all messed and good luck. He says, no, no, by the law you find out you're in trouble. And then I come for you when you can't get to me. I am love. That's why he says, look in Romans 3.22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jews and non-Jews, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul, in this context, is saying, no matter how many religious things you do, No matter what you've done, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your religious background or lack of it, none of it will cover the sin you did yesterday, are involved in today, or you'll be involved in tomorrow. But if, and here it is, but if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly. That is why as Christians, we can boldly go into a holy God's presence, because as Ephesians 2 says, We are in Christ, seated in the heavenly realms. Because we are in the one who actually fulfilled the thing we were supposed to and we couldn't. This is such 
unbelievable news for a world that is burdened by trying to do everything. Christianity stands and says, just stop. Or to quote Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Not so well. Romans chapter 10, flip over there just for a second. Romans 10.1, Paul is continually working this out. We'll get back to the Sermon on the Mount in a minute. He says, brothers and sisters, this is him talking about his people. He says, oh, my heart's desire, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for the Israelites as they might be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Ready? But their zeal is not based in knowledge. This is a profound description. These are deeply religious people. They were good people trying to obey God by using the law. They would put most of us sitting here in auditorium be online to shame. They gave more, they fasted more, they read their Bible more, they were all in. Now all those things are good and necessary after you've met God through Jesus, but not before. See, being religious, really good, obeying lots, being, here's a great word, zealous, never saves anybody. There are billions of people at this moment as I am speaking right now, I mean right now, that are deeply faithful, are really good, moral, kind, and religious There are hundreds of millions of cultural Christians right now. Muslims, Hindus, Wiccans, Sikhs, agnostics, even atheists. And we humanly come along and struggle when we hear, we struggle to believe that good, honest, sincere people are lost without Jesus. Now I want to say this morning, if you're a Christian and you don't have good relationships with those who are not in the church, get out and find out what's going on because you will find many, many, many people who are not followers of Jesus are good people. Let's break the lie that we're the good ones and they're not. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking at a deeper level. He's saying sincerity, good action does not replace the truth. A deeply honorable and religious Jewish community in Paul's day. As Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. He is basically saying when you begin to believe in and trust in. When you fundamentally in your core believe that there is a ladder that you can climb by what you do. You can be full of zeal, enthusiasm, passion, fervor, eagerness, keenness. You can know every Bible verse. But it leads you away from God if you do not meet God through Jesus first. Zealous people are the most lost people because they have exalted their zealousness as God. The deep people who deeply need God, who are hardest to reach, are the most moral among us. Verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to, notice, establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Here it is. Here's the connection. Ready? Verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be a righteousness for everyone who believes. Though I am a sinful human being, though I am a fire starter, though I've declared the fire's good, though I believe I'm in control enough to put out the fire, I can be still saved legally and relationally when the fireman shows up. Oh, and his name is Jesus. 
My sin is covered by him. God's just wrath is diverted by him. He overcomes death, overcomes sin. He breaks the devil's back. He shows up and says, just so you know, because I am love. I am the culmination, consummation. I am the climax of the law. I don't end the law. I fulfill the requirements of law for you forever. Jesus says, I'm not come to throw all this out. I'm the full expression of the whole deal. And we as a church should be going, oh, wow, like amazing grace. Amazing grace. But in that moment of beginning to find such hope and such joy and such freedom, when we really, really, really realize that the requirements of a holy God have been met, right in that moment where we're raising our hands and celebrating, there is a grand temptation. And the temptation is to say, that all this doesn't matter anymore. And Jesus comes and says, if you're part of my kingdom, you need to know that my kingdom stems from, flows from, has its roots, and always will involve the Old Testament. There is no such thing as a New Testament Christian. We are Bible people in this church. So Jesus comes in verse 18 and says, I tell you the truth. Back to Matthew 5, 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least pen stroke of uh, the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I tell you the truth. Jesus is the only leader I can find who uses this. He uses it 31 times in Matthew, 25 times in John. If you listen to the best leaders in your life, business leaders, doctors, whatever field, you will continually hear the best leaders among us quoting other experts. They will say, well, here's my opinion, and this person, and this person, and this person. I I do it all the time. I'll quote John MacArthur in one breath, and the next person is Henry Now, and the next person is Mother Teresa, and the next person is Andy Stanley, and you're like, how did you do that? They all disagree. It's okay. We're all in Jesus. Everyone's going to work out in heaven. But here's the point. You quote people because they are experts. Do you notice what Jesus does? I tell you. And anyone else? No, no, just me. Why? I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm God in flesh. I have full authority. I tell you, none of this is going to go away until the end of time. The smallest letter Jesus is referring to is called an iota. It was used 66,000 times in the Old Testament. It is a little comma that distinguishes different Hebrew letters. He says the smallest, almost seemingly insignificant on the page thing, none of this will pass away until the old kingdom is fully replaced by the new one. The Old Testament has authority. It's still my word. Jesus fulfills the law. The law isn't bad. The law shows me my sin. The law points me to Jesus. So here's my question this morning. If I'm really praying for God's kingdom to come, is there anything else? Here's the question I'm driving at this morning. For God's kingdom to grow in me, for God's kingdom to come more and more, is there any role for the moral law of God in the Christian walk? And Jesus says, heaven, yes, there is. And here it is, verse 19. Any one of you who breaks the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the law is like a multifaceted diamond, or, or you could think of it like a Swiss army knife with many different uses. The law shows you your sin and how much trouble you're in. 
Grace brings you to the point where you meet God. And you meet God through Jesus who fulfills the law perfectly. We find love for God through Jesus. And then the rest of our life, we love him back. Everyone ready? This is the moment. And the most significant major way we demonstrate our love back to God is we keep obeying his commands. The law forces you to see your need for Jesus. Jesus does this thing called grace where he accepts you, he covers you, and then he gives you this gift called the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, he sends all of us back to the moral law to obey him, not out of duty, but out of love. Did you just hear that? The law forces you to Christ. Christ covers you. He gives you his spirit. He sends you back to the law with the ability to obey it, not out of duty, but out of love. Obeying the law as a Christian is like keeping a healthy marriage really, really amazing. Don't misunderstand. It's like dating properly. It keeps the covenant right. Now, Jesus says, here's the truth. In my kingdom, there will be greater and lesser people. We all start at the level foot at the cross, every one of us. But after we experience grace, there is a decision to be made in each church and in each Christian's life. Those who are greater in the the kingdom do not hide from God anymore. Those who are greater in God's kingdom don't resist his reign and rule. Those who are greater in the kingdom of God welcome Jesus' experience and reign and his law, his lordship into every aspect of our life. Those who are greater obey. Those who are lesser will not obey. Both are going to heaven, but one is greater and one is lesser. See, this should give us new insights into the Ten Commandments as we read them now as members of the kingdom of God. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? The most famous Christian? No. The most intelligent among us? Absolutely not. The most put together? No. The best read among us? Absolutely not. How about the most articulate? No, not even that. How about the most beautiful? Sorry, that's going away. How about those with the most spectacular spiritual gifts? How about the one with the most charismatic personality? No, 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 no. The greatest people in God's kingdom are those who willingly, with joy, obey God's law through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Read the Ten Commandments as a Christian now. Don't have any other gods before me. Why? Because you met the real one. Don't make idols. Why would you waste your time? You've encountered Jesus. Don't misuse the name of the one that you love. Rest. Why? Because you don't need to earn anything anymore. Honor your mom and dad. Why? Because God has honored and blessed you. Don't murder. We're people of peace. Don't commit adultery. We've met a covenant-keeping God. Don't steal. God is your provider. Don't lie. lie. We're people of truth. Don't covet. Let your worship be about him and not other things. See, Jesus is actually raising the stakes. And most churches don't want to preach this anymore. We're going to hear in a few weeks about adultery, and Jesus comes along and says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And the whole crowd's like, yeah, I've never done that. Some people are like, well, I have. Most people are like, no. And he says, well, just I want to say, if you, uh, if you do the double look while you're walking down the street, you've done the same thing. What? Grace does not lessen the demand of holiness in the church. It increases it. Grace does not lessen the demands of holiness in the church. It increases it because now we have the ability because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to actually become people that obey. We become like Jesus. Now I want to say this very quickly because this is so significant. When we obey the law as Christians, it is about freedom. 
It's about freedom. This isn't about drudgery. This is about Christian joy. I don't have to steal anymore because I am a new creation. I don't have to commit adultery anymore. I am a new creation. I get to experience the new heavens and the new earth in part now. I get to reflect God. There's more freedom there than anything the world will offer. By the law, we get knowledge of our sin. By the law, the Holy Spirit shows us our need for the firemen to come. The law then becomes, after grace, the guide to holy kingdom come living after we've been saved. That's why Paul would write in Romans 7, 22, For my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now at this moment, Jesus does something mischievous. He uses the most evocative, strong, over-the-top language to bring all this home. And this is what he says in verse 20. I tell you, the old translation, I tell you the truth. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I just want to say this. You in Auditorium B, you can do this too. I'm going to read this again. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not, you will certainly not, what's the next word? Say it loud, loud. Enter the kingdom of heaven. So this should be very concerning. So I want you to do this. I want you to think at this moment of the most godly person in your life. Ever. They could be an author, could be a preacher, could be a person you know. Maybe it's like Dallas Willard or Francis Chan or John Piper, Mother Teresa, Andy Stanley. Maybe it's your grandma. A mentor, a pastor, connected. Okay, everyone got? Raise your hand if you got the person in your head. Raise your hand. Okay, right, got it. I want you to times in your head by a thousand everything that you do, they do that you think is amazing. And Jesus comes along to you, and here's the modern translation. If you do not exceed the most godly person in your life, and all they do, you're going to hell. What? Yeah, yeah, just want to tell you, I'm Jesus, meek and mild, just want to tell you, if you do not exceed the righteousness of the person you have in your head who prays more and is more pure and study, you're going to hell. There would be a gasp in the crowd. I mean, the disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be like, are you joking me? They can't even keep up half the time. But we are the standard. (laughs) Right, okay. The disciples are like, why are you even using them? They're our enemies. And the crowd is like, we're done. Here's why. The Pharisees were the best lay preachers ever produced by Israel. They were actually really unbelievable people. Their name, Pharisee, meant separated one. Their whole life was knowing truth, teaching truth, expounding the truth. The Old Testament has 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and their goal was to keep all of them flawlessly. And then they were so concerned for themselves and others, they built something called the Oral Law that invented a whole other group of prohibitions that they invented so you wouldn't even break the original law. So don't do this. And then they added five more rules to stop you, to stop you, to stop you. And their whole life is consumed by doing that. And Jesus shows up and says, just to tell you, if you're not better than these people, you're on your way to a godless eternity. And then we go, what? I'm completely confused and a little angry. You just told me that you fulfilled everything for me and I don't need to worry. Then you show the most righteous person in my life and say, be better than them or you're not in. So which one is it? Flip or flop? Scary, scary. This is getting cultic. And Jesus looks and says, exactly. You're like, oh, come on. What do you mean, exactly? One last reminder, he says. 
I want to point out the word again. I'm not talking about how you live after you're in the kingdom. But you enter the kingdom of God only by my work. Jesus ends this conversation reminding us one last time, one last time, as he's just told us to live out the law, he has said, but I stress to you, you need a perfect savior. You need someone to save you from your fire starting. You need my righteousness. I have succeeded in fulfilling all the requirements that the Pharisees think they're even doing. Paul, of course, wrote this best. He was the great Pharisee in his day. And here's what he wrote at the end of his life in Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, well, I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, legalistic righteousness, well, check, faultless. But whatever I considered profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, who for my sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. See that word rubbish? It's S-H-I-T in Greek. I won't say it out loud to offend you. I consider it that, that I may gain Christ. By this, Jesus himself shows us we'll never be saved by what we do. We always need another person's help. This goes back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the person who admits need. Blessed is the person who says, I may have a lot in life, but I'm bankrupt before God. Blessed is anyone that says, I cannot earn, keep, hold on, or grab salvation. Oh, how I need someone to put out my fire. Here's the summary of what Jesus' teaching is. The law is good. The law is not going away. The law has been fulfilled in all ways. The law drives you to see your sin. The law shows you your need for a savior. And after, by grace alone, through faith alone, and trust in Jesus alone, the author and teacher of the Sermon on the Mount, as you enter into the kingdom of God, the law becomes how we obey God in the relationship we're already in. Jesus is calling Christians to a deeper righteousness, a more robust righteousness, or as I love Scott McKnight wrote once, this Jesus creed threatens legalists and minimalists. Legalists say you get in by what you do, and Jesus says you're dead wrong. And minimalists say, I just need grace, grace, God's grace. I don't have to obey anything anymore. And he says, you're dead wrong too. So here's where I want to end as we're praying for God's kingdom to come. Number one, hear this. Is anyone tired of trying to please God fully? So many of us sitting in this audience, you and Auditorium B, we're Christians. We acknowledge Jesus has saved us. But your inner thought life reflects you don't believe God is truth. You're still saying, but I'm too guilty. Or he won't forgive me this time. Or I'm not sure if he can hear me anymore. Or my salvation's in question. Or, or why would he listen to me? Or I've screwed up again. I don't feel him anymore. And Jesus says, no, no. I fulfilled it all. You're in. There's, there's great hope in this. Jesus, the Messiah, makes people clean for good. You who are not Christians among us or Christian by name, the offer is given to you today. Let God fill your place. Admit that you have sinned. Admit you're a fire starter. Admit that you have been the person that have lived your life either deeply religious or unreligious, but admit your inability, your need for a savior. Let Jesus step in and be your righteousness and then have a new living way out of him. Some of you here this morning, you are guilty of saying, I don't need you, God. I can control the fire. And others of you 
are deeply religious and you just think, I'm just fine. Both of you have exalted yourself. Both of you have committed the sin of putting you in the place of God. At this moment, Jesus comes and says, I fulfilled everything so you could know God, be encountered by God, find forgiveness and love. If that's you here this morning, would you pray this prayer and welcome yourself as God welcome you into the kingdom? You in Auditorium B, you online, pray this at this moment. If you are sitting going, oh my goodness, your heart is palpitating, going, oh no, I'm the fire starter. God comes and says, yes, you are, and I've not exposed you to hurt you. I've done this to save you. So at this moment, pray this, cry this out. God, I'm the fire starter. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I'm done running my own life. And And I now, I ask you to run it and be the Lord of my life. I invite you to be my covering, to fulfill all that stuff. Come into my heart and my life. I trust and follow you now as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say that if you prayed that right after the service, there'll be prayer people here, prayer people in Auditorium B, and if you're online, Facebook us, Instagram, Twitter, anything, we'll get connected with you to help you. One last thought, and then the team will come up. And I just want to say this, and this is done for our freedom, church. Everyone ready? The call is clear. The kingdom come is demonstrated not just by talk, but by action. Do not believe that since we have grace, we can lower God's standards in his call for our personal holiness. Since we have access, since we have grace, since there's a new way of of living, since we've encountered Jesus, since we have been given the Spirit, we can now obey the moral law. We can keep our life with God pure and holy and good. And as we obey the law, we will become blessed people. As we obey the moral law under God's grace, we will find freedom. We will reflect, everyone ready? The kingdom of God. What do you think? Why do you desire the new heavens and the new earth? Like, why do you really want heaven? Because in heaven, there's going to be no murder. Because in heaven, no one's going to cheat on anyone. Because in heaven, there's no other competing idols. Because in heaven, we are going to rest. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll never misuse his name, we'll just glorify it. The longings of the world and the deeper longings of the church are all going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And God is saying at this moment, you get to begin to participate in that life now. As the team comes up, let me say these words and then we'll, we'll sing to him and respond. The Bible's good. We're covered by the best fulfiller in history. By Christ's spirit, he offers us ongoing freedom and blessedness. We are not saved by what we do, but we do because we are saved. Can I say that again? We're not saved by what we do, but we do because we are saved. And Jesus is inviting us to not live a life under pressure to find holiness because it's been given. But he invites us into a life of freedom because that's what we were made to look like. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are asking to obey God in the deepest parts of our life. It is a call for radical holiness under grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the covering of our great God, Jesus. Lord, hear our prayer this morning. Help us know that we are covered. Help us know that we don't need to prove ourselves. Help us know we are free. 
Help us by your Holy Spirit to have a deep new appreciation for your holiness. Help us, Lord, to obey in a way we never have. Help us, Lord, to be people of love and joy and holiness. And we pray this. God, your kingdom come right now into our relationships, right now into our motives, right now into our sexual worldviews, right now into our money, right now into our families, right now across this whole church. Lord, may the holiness found in this church be shocking and beautiful, not drudgery and pain. Lord, thank you. We must end by saying this. Jesus, thank you that you fulfilled it all for us. Oh, amazing grace. Amazing grace that we do not need to spend our lives anymore wondering if we're in. I declare a blessing over you, church, this morning. You are in because of the work of Jesus. You are in because of the work of Jesus. And no one can remove you from the hand of Jesus once he says yes to you. He is the great fulfillment. Go in that truth and live a new life in a power that is unnatural to you. Amen, amen, amen. Amen.